is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we find out about the JEC regions across the UK as we meet Shropshire and Welsh Borders Chairman Nick Cliff and explore his fascinating stories with Jaguars. Plus, Tom Robinson has been testing at Pembury and Richard West recalls his favourite circuits. JECpodcast.com Hi, I hope you're well. Can't believe as I'm recording this that it's September already, as 2020 quite literally zooms by. And already we're looking ahead to the 60th anniversary of the Jaguar E-Type, the 20th anniversary of the X-Type as well, and of course the 60th anniversary of the Mark 10 Saloon, and indeed of the Jaguar win at Le Mans, the very first one in 1951. All of these being celebrated next May, between the 14th and 16th of May 2021, at the Summer Jaguar Festival, Blenheim Palace. Weekend packages for our weekend stays at Haythrop Park Hotel, just down the road from Blenheim Palace, uh, to come and join in with all of the weekend's wider activities. They're now on sale at jec.org.uk forward slash festival. And I can tell you already, they have been selling like hotcakes. So don't be missing out. Get yours now. jec.org.uk forward slash festival. First, though, on the podcast, time to learn more about our chosen charity the Haemophilia Society, who we're raising money for via the raffle ticket sales to win our superb Jaguar XK. Don't forget to buy your raffle tickets online at jc.org.uk forward slash raffle. This week, it's Matthew Minshaw. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for joining us. Hi, no worries. So, Matthew, tell us all about yourself. Where are you talking to us from and what you've been up to today? What do you do? Tell us about Matthew. We want to know. I'm 23 years old. I'm talking to you from my hometown in Beverly, a um, little market town just up north in East Yorkshire. And at the minute, um, with all the COVID and everything going on, I've been working as a physiotherapy assistant on the wards at the hospital. Um, but apart from that, I'm a product design graduate. And once the industries um, clear up and everything, I'm looking to move down to London and hopefully get a creative role down there and make the next step towards something big, hopefully. I'm also a hemophiliac, by the way. I forgot to drop that in there. Well, tell us about that, because everyone has their own story as to how they found the Haemophilia Society. Tell us yours. Diagnosed since I was born. Um, I've got severe haemophilia, which means my body produces less than 1% of the clotting factor. Um, compared to a normal person who's normally on average around 80 to 100. Um, my life story is nothing special um, from a haemophiliac's perspective, but uh, one thing is, is um, growing up I have suffered from um, bleeds here and there, so spe specifically in the joints and muscles as I've grown up and done activities. And part of the treatment for that is having injections. So then there's my involvement with the Haemophilia Society, which, although the name Haemophilia supports many others um, as well as Haemophilia. So it's a bleeding disorder charity. It's all inclusive. And at the minute, we're pushing Talking Red as well, which is about supporting them women with bleeding disorders themselves. Has there been a particular point in your life where that lack of understanding amongst the general public has been a problem? While I was at university my final year, I worked in a pub. 
earn some money um, just to keep me ticking over as I had to support myself alongside my studies, um, which was food, petrol, and a little bit of beer money. But as I was working there, um, one of the things with these intra intravenous injections that I have to have on a daily basis, it leaves with um, track marks or scarring in my elbow creases. And one of the customers happened to point it out and uh, made an off comment about the fact there was these track marks there and what I might get up to in my spare time. It really hit home how there's such a naivety there and people really don't understand. Like many a times growing up through school, um, the simple comments, but you'd have kids go up to you, ah, you're the one who bleeds, you've got haemophilia. So if you cut yourself, does that mean you'll die? Stupid stuff like that. Tell us about the community around the Haemophilia Society, what you get up to together and how that's helped you in your life. Oh, it's fantastic because as such a rare condition, um, you can on many occasions feel quite alone just because there's not many people in your area. And although many of our experiences are slightly different, we're all going through something similar. So there's a real camaraderie there and we look to our elders and our peers and as part of the community as well, there's a lot of stuff that goes through the Haemophilia Society. So there's a lot of engagement bringing families together. One of the big ones that I thoroughly enjoy since being a youth ambassador is the newly diagnosed weekends. So you have families here who have just received a diagnosis and the first thing you'll do is go on to Google and see what haemophilia is about. And that is, uh, world comes crashing down and everything. But these newly diagnosed weekends is a new lease of life for the families. Also showcase what other haemophiliacs get up to and a real support network there to show that with the right attitude, your child can move on and develop into something wonderful and do something great. So for you, Matthew, in just a few words, why should people go out and buy the raffle ticket to win this Jaguar XK? Oh, well, for one thing, it's a fantastic car, isn't it? God, it sells itself. But uh, from a haemophilia point of view, the charity that you're supporting this year, it just makes a massive difference to the community because um, not everyone has the opportunity to socialise or reach out to others and may need a lot of support that um, is not offered in their area. So uh, the Haemophilia Society can really bring these people together, help them support each other and also raise awareness to other topics well said matthew many thanks for joining us and don't forget to buy your raffle tickets now at jc.org.uk forward slash raffle to be in with a chance of winning our 2014 model 5 liter v8 jaguar xk get your tickets now memories of motorsport richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast well now, Richard West, of course, remembers some more great memories from a lifetime in motorsport. And uh, Richard, I thought we'd talk about circuits this week on the podcast. You have covered just about every corner of the globe during the years, and you must have some particular favourites that conjure up some really nice memories. I do indeed, Wayne. I mean, it's, it's a hard choice because I was thinking about this when we talked a little earlier. You know, there was the Japanese sports car championship with Jaguar and also IMSA, of course, in the States, which was a mixture of permanent racetracks and street circuits. There was, of course, Le Mans, which, uh, you know, was amazing. And then all the circuits I visited in F1 and then with touring cars. But I think really we should start with Le Mans because we've talked about it before. But it's one of those places, and you know, because you've spent a lot of time there, 
it's not just about the circuit. It's about that moment when you start to see the signpost, which sadly for me has got a pair of outlines of what I easily recognise as Sauber Mercedes on the way in on the payage. But when you actually get there and you drive, you know, into the outskirts of the town, you're aware immediately because some of the old signage still exists on the side of some of the older buildings. And of course, once you get into there, there's no mistaking the fact that many of the shops, many of the cafes and the buildings there have got references to Le Mans previous races and some of the drinks and cigarette companies, of course, that supported some of those earlier entries. And it's just a magical place. And I think even when you drive through it, as I've done many, many times on my way, you know, through to vacation or, or when I had a, a, a home in France, you just get this feeling that you are in the centre of motor racing. And the ACO, of course, have done a wonderful job with the museum there and other things. And I think the the memories of some of the smells and the sights and the sounds of the 24-hour race stay with stay with me forever because whenever you go to a campsite you know somebody's got a barbecue going or even in your own back garden you know somebody next door is having a barbecue and maybe you've got a beer on or a cigarette or a cigar or something which you shouldn't do i know but we do and those smells are very evocative and suddenly you think god yeah i do remember that night when you know we first got there on the tuesday etc etc so yeah Le Mans always ranks for me as a very favorite place i remember going out to the molson before the chicanes were there with tom walkinshaw one evening you know in dark and he said to me you'll be impressed with this and the first time i'd ever been down there you know one of the um, world sports cars went past us absolutely flat chat you know 247 mile an hour it does make you stop and think you know what those boys do and yep it always holds special memories so le mans is right up there but I had a strange experience the other day. I, I actually went to Brand Satch last week. Uh, I was there with uh, my young superbike protege, Ollie uh, Warren, who was doing a test with Kawasaki. And, you know, I hadn't been bike racing for a very long time. It's where I actually started out as a young boy. I was going to the Isle of Man on a regular basis to see the TT races every year with my cousin. And I walked back into the paddock at Brands, and it holds some great memories for me there, you know, when we relaunched Nigel there after the loss of Ayrton in 94 that we talked about recently. I remember going there for the BOAC 5000, I think it was, you know, one of the endurance races. But it was a bike racing day, and I was standing in the infield in the middle of the indie circuit, and one of the one of the categories, there was a guy there with an old 250 um, TD or RD Yamaha running on Castrol R. And as it went blasting by, I suddenly thought, I recognise that smell. <laughs> and it's just one of those things about motorsport that you you just, those evocative memories come flooding back. So, yeah, Brands Hatch would rate up there with me as a very favourite place as well. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there are some amazing Formula One circuits around the world and, yeah, some of those that are almost a cliche because they are so iconic, but some that hold special memories for you, I know, as well. Yeah, indeed. Adelaide was always, always for me, I, I was lucky enough to do all 10 Adelaides, um, uh, all races that were held there over that period before it moved to Melbourne. And when we first went there, it was an absolute revelation because... Uh, the Aussies really knew how to throw a party as well. I mean, Adelaide, from the word go, was hugely popular with the teams because it was the end of the season. Um, it gave you a chance to let your hair down. The race before was usually Suzuka. And what we used to do was we'd leave Suzuka, fly down to northern Australia, have a few days off in um, Port Douglas where we'd all go and play golf and Eddie Jordan had hold court with Johnny Herbert and David Coulthard and other people. And we had some, some crazy holiday time there. And then we would arrive in Adelaide and they knew how to put on a street race. I mean, they were way ahead of the games. Mel Hemmerling, the director, and Glenn Jones, who was his number two 
and a number of other men and women there, they put on an incredible event. And because it was a street race, literally right in the middle of the heart of Adelaide, you know, you'd literally walk out of the circuit in the evening and then five minute walk, you know, along to Caterville Terrace, you drop down into the, the centre of Adelaide where all the restaurants and the bars and the clubs and everything were. And of course, invariably, you didn't get back to your hotel till one or two in the morning. But it, the racing was great there too. There were some titanic battles. Um, at at uh, McLaren, we l- almost lucked into a win when um, Nigel had his tyre failure that cost him, you know, a world championship title. And we went on to win the race and win the constructors' title that year. But the Aussies love a good time, and basically, Melbourne today is is just as good in many ways in terms of its social side. But there was something very special about Adelaide, and uh, having won races there with a number of the leading teams and drivers, it again holds a very special place in my heart. And it was a lovely way to finish up the season every year before we then came back to the British winter, which wasn't quite so much fun. And also, some circuits that have long since passed into history. Yeah, indeed. I mean, again, I, I don't know whether it's talking to you, Ricky, who's done it, but I've sort of been going back through my old notebooks and scrap albums and things. And one of the places I used to go and watch motorcycle racing and cars was Crystal Palace. And there's there'd be a lot of people who are probably listening to this podcast going, Crystal, where? You know, I thought that was a, a radio tra- television transmitter in London. But the race circuit there was fantastic. And I mean, when I used to go racing there, there was a lot of railway sleepers and things which, and earth banks, which served really as the, as the runoff areas, if you can call them that. And it used to host all sorts of things. I remember seeing, you know, I think, I think it was Jim Park and a Lotus Cortina when I was a very young guy racing around there. And of course, Formula Three races. You spoke to another interviewee recently about his memories of actually racing there. And it was an incredible place because, you know, you packed a lot of people in there um, behind the old sort of statutory wire fence with wooden poles. And uh, there were very few facilities, but it, it just had a magic about it. And it's um, a bit like you said earlier, it's um, a bit like Aintree, you know, these names pass into history. If you're a purist, you remember them. But certainly for a lot of people, I'm sure, I think it was you actually said, you know, there weren't many circuits you could go to on the tube. And sadly, there's none of those anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Straight out of the city of London and onto the tube. And, uh, you know, there, there you is were. motorsport on your doorstep. And uh, Yeah, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Incredible. I think I'd be, I'd be wrong to not also count Imola, which many of the listeners might find a bit strange because of, the memories I have there of losing Roland and Ayrton in that dreadful weekend back in 1994. But Imola was and remains an incredible circuit within the confines of an incredible town. Because when you, when you actually get to the San Marino Grand Prix and you go into Imola, it's a, the Grand Prix used to be in April. I pretty much always used to celebrate my birthday down there on the Wednesday or Thursday leading up to race weekends in F1. And... It's a magical place, you know, at that time of year because the, the, the European spring is, is upon us at that time. There's quite a lot of um, pollen and stuff in the air, so we all, those of us with hay fever, all started sneezing at that particular race track. But the thing that was lovely about it was I always remember you used to wake up very early on a Sunday morning. You'd hear the helicopters in the distance, you know, coming into the track with the early people. You'd hear the burbling of the fans, but you'd also hear the old dog barking, and then you'd hear an Italian lady giving her husband, you know, a hard time because he probably came in late with one too many beers the night before. And as you walked into the circuit, you know, there'd be all the local people still there. Some of them would be cycling in. And then, of course, you would see all the 
the, the myriad of Ferrari uh, fans streaming into the circuit as well. But it was a, it, it was a beautiful, beautiful place. And I haven't I haven't been back. I, I went back in 2008, but I haven't been back since. But it's on my list to go back one day. And I just have very, very fond memories, as well as the tragic ones. I have very fond memories of being at uh, Imla. And um, there's talk, you know, of it coming back into the calendars in the future. It's a great place. And if you love Italy and you love the Italian food and wine, there's no better place on earth. It, it really is a wonderful place. So five stars for Imola in, in my memory books. Well, it'd be great to see that back in the calendar. And of course, uh, Crystal Palace itself making a comeback very recently. The Seven Oaks and District Motor Club starting to run sprints there now. Uh, well, there was supposed to be a revival meeting there in May of this year, but of course, COVID put paid to that. But I understand that there are some permissions to run some motorsport back at that venue after the final closure took place in 1974 richard of uh, good Christian lord Paris. is that when it was we'll have to make a trip wayne we when will we know that there's a when we know there's an event we'll pick out one of the jags and we'll go up there and take a look around i'd love to do that absolutely and perhaps we could see uh, jaguars racing there in anger once again well the man to take jaguars back there might well be tom tom robinson from swallows independent jaguar updates us with his latest motorsport diary next You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. I'm just queuing up um, to get onto track here at Pembury. Now, we've already had a driver's briefing and they've already done the course laps. So um, when you first get to some of these test days or track days, you can follow the um, instructor around in the car to get a feel for the circuit and know which way it goes before you go any further. Now, we've done all that. And um, we're now going into sessions. Now it is open pit lane here, which is a which is a pretty big benefit because we can come in and out as many times as we need um, to test the car or to do damper adjustments or whatever's needed. So, as as we said in last week's episode, there's a couple of things we want to monitor. Mainly, obviously, are the coolant temperatures being dry. We want to see if we can get the car or put the car for its paces and get it to its limitations. Now, um, with it being dry, we can we can obviously push a lot harder than we can in the wet. So we'll we'll soon see if there's any problems with the um, with the heating side or the cooling side of the car. Now we've carried out those couple of modifications that we discussed. So hopefully they're beneficial and they keep the, uh, the coolant stable. Um, so just about to go out, um, I'll let you know how we get on in the first session and throughout the day we'll give you an update on what we're doing. Just come back from about sort of half an hour in the car at Pembury and so far so good. Um, it's actually a really good little circuit, it's, it's quite short um, but it keeps you on the toes and there's a couple of really nice sectors um, to sort of really push the car for its paces and there's quite a couple, couple of quite heavy braking points as well so we can really sort of dial the car in hopefully today um, it's still dry and it's pretty warm ambient temperature wise so that should be a good inkling to whether we are going to get any issues with this with the coolant temp so so far so good it's running a little bit warmer than i've seen in the past it was coming up to sort of 96 97 near the end of the session but we don't normally run for that long we normally do sort of 20 minute um, races so it only started creeping up at the end so it's what i'm going to do is i'm just going to adjust the, uh, the water pump a little bit more just increase speed at the higher rpms just to see if we can bring that down a little bit and that should rectify that problem completely which is great news to be honest with you um, obviously the the fan cowling and all those other little tweaks we've done are doing exactly what we wanted them to do so um, the car
car's obviously got the new wheels on feels really good on those um, definitely feels different under braking which is really interesting to be honest and it does feel a little bit um, more nimble than it did so um, it all helps to be honest and every little edge um, is always a benefit to be honest whatever you can find it's what it's worth having so um, we're gonna, I'm going to spend as much time in the car as possible today I've got a new set of tyres to scrub in later on in the day as well which will get that done and um, we're going to play around with some damper settings um, and see how we go from there I've obviously got that second hand gearbox that is our spare gearbox in the car and it feels absolutely fine to be honest which is good news um, which has got rid of the third to fourth synchro issue so so far so good um, and the plan to just spend as much time in the car as possible today and really put it through its paces and see if we can find anything that we need to do before Donington and make sure we've got about two weeks to get that done so we've got a little bit of time to to iron out the final kinks well that's the end of the day now and um, we've we've really managed to, to push the XJ for its paces today and it's been absolutely faultless all day um, so touch wood it, it stays there for, for Donington we've got a couple of small tweaks that we're going to do um, nothing major really after increasing the water pump there was no further problems with the um, engine temperatures they were stable throughout the day I tried varying different driving styles we stayed out there for a, a good 40 minute session I did short shorter sessions with quicker laps on car tires just to, to to see if we could affect the coolant temp in any way and it didn't seem to which is which is great news and and sort of finally getting to spend some time in a new car in the dry is massively beneficial I was able to dial the dampers down slightly um, and just get it as balanced as possible with a little bit less weight in there so I've actually softened off the rear a little bit which has helped with a little bit of grip um, and and yeah it was a, a really productive day and it's nice to finally get some time in the car um, not actually racing if that makes sense just just relaxed not having to worry about any sort of grid positions just to go out there and get a good feel for the car and set it up exactly how we want so it's all positives um, we'll get it back to the workshop now we've got a couple of hours drive home um, we're going to iron out a few little um, kinks before Donington one of those was the, the gear change um, wasn't as smooth as I'd like it so that's actually I think it's a linkage issue so we're just going to tweak that um, we can swap all the tires round onto the other wheels now so I've scrubbed a set of new tires I can put those on the new wheels ready for Donington and and yeah we should be all ready for the next round at Donington join the Jaguar enthusiasts club now at jec.org.uk Now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast we're going to be looking at an element of club life here in the JEC of course the worldwide Jaguar community that is the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and an element of our club that we haven't discussed an awful lot on this podcast so far probably with the backbone of the club is the regions and across the UK and indeed the world there are regions to the JEC where local meets happen and regional events take place and one of the leaders of those JEC regions joins me now uh, he leads the JEC Shropshire and Welsh Borders region and it is Nick Cliff hiya Nick hello Wayne or should I say hey Wayne I don't want to make you sound like a constable painting really so uh, it's <laughs> Hi, <laughs> Wayne. <laughs> It's brilliant to have someone from the regions in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club because, as I said, you are the kind of the backbone to the social side of the club, aren't you? And tell us about your own story as to how you ended up running the JC Shropshire region. It, it sort of harks back to my, my second Jaguar was um, an XK8, which uh, when we were on holiday, I was walking past the news agents every day and uh, 
seeing this one parked in the drive, and I, I was just thinking how beautiful the shape was, and what a wonderful follow-on to the the spirit of the E-type. Uh, so ultimately, I just had to have one, and I found one fairly locally. Um, a Pacific blue one with a blue hood, um, cream interior. Um, it was total, uh, being a novice at the Jaguar side, I was uh, totally unaware of the potential problems that, like the underfloor rot and the hood latch fail and that sort of thing. And I bought it from the dealer and um, really enjoyed driving it. And I thought, well, I need to sort of get together with other people with Jaguars because you, you have this sort of camaraderie when you're on the road where you, you see another, another classic looking Jaguar and you wave. And sometimes if you, in the car park you go over and have a chat so the social side is is probably as important as the car ownership side really because um we're all of a like mind so um I, I looked up various clubs and i thought well the nearest one is um jc which was in our region i, I lived near Whitchurch in shropshire and just in north shropshire and uh, the meeting place was in shrewsbury so went down there one evening for a, with a bit of trepidation to introduce myself and um a uh, very friendly bunch. It was it was very pleasant, and uh, it happened to be the AGM, so I was able to hear some of the uh, kind of more financial reporting aspects and the, the the decisions that were made, and never dreaming that ultimately I'd be sort of responsible for that sort of thing. So that that introduced me gradually to the various events. Going back on myself a bit now, um, going a few years back. The XK8 started developing a few problems, and um, well, I went to XK Engineering in Stoke, who, who are no longer trading now, but um, spent about four and a half grand there getting all the bodywork done, uh, hood latch fail fixed, and then some of the coils went. So, and so I thought, well, rather than do that, I, XKRs um, are much more desirable and much faster. And one of the clubs I'd also joined, somebody had um, a Seafrost one. And I thought, what a fantastic colour, quite a rare colour. So I started looking around. And, of course, in the JC classifiers, what do I see as soon as I start looking around? But um, a very low on a ship, low miles, XKR in Seafrost. <laughs> it was down in Brighton. A, guy called, a JC member called David Lawrence um, getting, a bit, getting on a bit, found it was too hard keeping the car. But he, he really cosseted the car um, to the to the extent that um, every week he'd go out and he'd make a mark on the wheels where the tyres had been resting and then make sure he parked it again where the uh, it wasn't on the mark so you had no flat spots. And it's utterly fastidious. So, of course, this was the sort of car you want to buy. Um, so we, we got it, brought it back and um, sold the um, XK8. At the same time, um, I'd, I'd always wanted an E-Type and a Series 3. Now, of course, I, I learned a bit later on that um, Norman Dewis's favourite choice of the E-Types the e was actually the Series 3, probably due to the, the, the sort of practicality of owning one, really. A um, bit more room, wider doors, more, more space to carry things, very practical. So um, I, was, I was after a manual and a coupe for years, really, um, couldn't find a decent one anyway. I went to see a few which were mostly rubbish. And so, a bit surprising for a Jaguar enthusiast, but I ended up with um, a Healy 3000 because that's what I'd always oh, wow. had um, yeah. right back in my youth. Uh, and I, went, I went through the whole series of big Healy's. I loved, I loved the straight six, the, the kind of brute force of it and the, mm. the flexibility of the chassis as you tried to do calling where it would break away <laughs> unexpectedly. <laughs> um, the first big Healy I had was a 104, which um, 
uh, had, used to drive around with the, the windscreen down, um, which really felt fast. And even if you're only doing 60, it felt really fast. Well, yeah, of course, they uh, fold forward, don't they, on the 104s? That's right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then it, it felt, felt especially fast when I was hitting the eye by a bee. So um, that didn't do me any good. So <laughs> after that, I, I bought um, an aircraft pilot's goggles and helmet, <laughs> and I'd drive around. <laughs> that. So people got to know me, you know. <laughs> Um, then I, I had a hundred six. Oh, and um, yeah, the funny thing about the hundred four um, was that I, I I was living with my parents at the time, and I was only sort of eighteen. And um, my father discovered that to his horror that um, the insurance needed a guarantor because uh, there was a hundred pounds excess, and of course, hundred quid was a, long, a lot of money in those days. Mm. So he said, "No, nope, it's got to go. You've got to sell it." So. Um, I was looking around. I used to get Classic Car Magazine. I had it on subscription even then. And uh, I found somebody in Horsham who had a 1937 MGTA. Of course, it, I know you, you're an M, MG man, so um, mm. uh, as well as the Triumph. Yeah, <laughs> a lover of many, many, many brands. Really. Indeed. Yeah, I get uh, myself into all sorts of trouble, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Likewise. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, well, I drove, he wanted a Healy 104, and so I drove down, and we did a direct swap. Um, and it was great, because having seen the car, um, the registration on it was DUG123. And uh, I said, oh, this is an amazing number. And he said, well, actually, it was reputed to have been Douglas Bader's car, the war, you know, the wartime car. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Hero. Um, but he said the, the documents had been, the, the, the registration authority had been bombed, and the documents had been lost, so it couldn't be... Um, sort of confirmed but uh yeah i drove that back um in the middle of the winter um up the m1 and the hood latch the hood thing wouldn't stay on at the front on the windscreen you had sort of this toggle to tighten it up and the thread had gone so uh i had to drive back uh in the freezing cold and of course it was gradually my head was freezing up so i luckily i had some pajama trousers with me <laughs> and i wrapped them around my head like a turban so that turned a few heads as i was driving back up the motorway with pajama trousers flailing behind me <laughs> well you use what you can lay your hands on don't you at the end of the day <laughs> well you you do you do obviously the jaguar isn't your first classic car and you had a history with cars already but you joined the club and you managed to find pretty much better cars through being a member of your JEC region. And I think that's important because a lot of people don't bother joining a club until they've got a car. And it's kind of the wrong way around, isn't it, really? It, it is really, yeah. And if you're looking for something, um, whenever you ask anybody who's a, um, an enthusiastic JEC member, they're, they're more than happy to give you some of the, the background information, what to look out for. And quite often there are cars which um, only come up there. And, and in fact, funnily enough, bringing it right back to, to current times, um, somebody got in touch with Al McLean, who's our um, club secretary, to say that they had had um, a Jaguar Super V8 uh, which they'd had from you, had only done 15,000 miles, and he was getting a bit too old to, to drive it, and his wife didn't want to drive it because it was too powerful, because it's obviously supercharged. It's a real supercar package. Um, did they know anybody in the club that might want it? So I got them to send me all the info, and I put that on Facebook. And um, Craig Petty, who actually sold them the car, actually follows us on Facebook, and he, he wrote to say... I remember distinctly selling them that car. Absolutely beautiful package. It was the most expensive Jaguar. So um, being in the club, 
now that has presented members only without the wider general public to have the opportunity to buy an almost new and beautifully cared for and it could be potentially concourse with a bit of work uh, jaguar which nobody else could could um, have I'll, I'll just go back to, to how i sort of became chairman then we were at the um the wem classic car show and we're all sitting in the tent uh, the gazebo and I walk around and I like to chat to different people about who don't just have Jaguars, but particularly Jaguars, and chat around the course and have a look at their cars and say, ask them if they're members and so on. Came back in and one of the guys said, um, oh, we've, we've, had a, we've, we've come to a decision, Nick. We'd like you to be our chairman. Well, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather because um, I'd, I had no idea what that involved. Um, so I said, well, yeah, okay. And it's been a sort of journey of discovery, really. But it, it, it happened uh, short, shortly before the COVID situation. So I had to start thinking about what sort of things we could do to keep the club together and, and have events uh, where we were COVID safe, and but the social distancing could be observed. So obviously we couldn't have big gatherings. So um, came up with a few ideas, and uh, first first one of which was um, drive-by shooting, yes. which was nothing to do with uh, popping people off with a, a gun. <laughs> this is a fantastic idea, and when you sent this to me, I, I, if, if it wasn't for the fact I was on the other side of the country, I'd have given, come and had a drive-by myself. But uh, yeah, if you can't get out of your cars and chat to each other, do something where you can stay in the car. This is a fantastic idea. Yeah, and it worked very well. It was very well attended because everybody was looking for something where they could actually have an excuse to take their cars out and get them polished up. And um, so following on from that success, um, the next one, of course, which we just had to do, was that um, we were coming up to the 100th anniversary of the birth of Norman Jewis. Um, and being in the Shropshire region, he lived in um, Church Stretton. We had to do something to celebrate that birthday. So... Um, I organised the uh, 100 run, which was to celebrate his birthday, and uh, plotted a, a route. And that's another good thing. We get to see a lot of um, Shropshire runs, um, tr checking out a route to go somewhere as a, as a sort of club convoy. Um, we go out, and Sue and I, my wife, um, we go out and check various routes by first of all looking on google earth and then actually driving it um taking photographs of key points where people could um, get lost find discovering some amazing roads that would never have gone down superb long winding lanes with open views where you can really get your foot down if you're that way inclined um so organized the 100 run and lots of photo opportunities what i am seeing from hearing you talk about the events that you've done there is there's a common theme in that you like to get out and use your jaguars quite a few of the clubs now are organizing runs out and obviously you've got the, the the continental runs as well those sort of things i do find difficult because i'm running a very busy business as well still still working for my sins um so the the, the longer weekends away do prove to be quite difficult because it's difficult to leave the business but um Certainly, when it's the enthusiasts who are driving the market again, and those enthusiasts buy a Jaguar to drive it. And my E-Type, um, it was a, it's a wonderful find, um, found it pretty locally, um, had only done 15,700 and something miles from new, uh, genuine history, right, from, right back from 71. And uh, so it's an unmolested original car. Now, the tendency for an investor would be, lock it away in the garage, don't use it. And I, I get it out there and use it you know, to, in moderation, but I, I drove it to Blenheim, 
we went it was great to go in the parade and um had a fantastic drive there and back and i, I take it to various shows and i I just go out for a run occasionally just say once every three or four weeks because these cars need to be driven and um keeping it in a, a dehumidified garage is great for the paintwork and the the upholstery but it can tend to dry out seals and things so you know you need to you need to give it a good 10 mile run and that's the beauty of owning a Jaguar. When as soon as it's not raining, I'm out in it. <laughs> well, especially next year, we've got the 60th anniversary of the Jaguar E-Type, oh, so a great yeah. opportunity I mean, that, to get the car out. And there, there are so many cars, so many anniversaries to celebrate at that yeah. event, aren't there? Yeah, there are, of course. A mega event. These bigger shows, the sort of big national events, it's nice to have a group of you to go along to them as a unit as well, isn't it? It's, it's a good bit of camaraderie around that. Oh, yeah, there's, there's a camaraderie, the shared experience that you can then go back and relate to your other, your other members. And also the, um, the security of it is if you're driving an old Jaguar and you break down, you've got your mates with you who can help you out rather than being on your own. So from, from every respect, it's, it's great that. I guess a lot of people, especially those who've never had any experience of car clubs before, could find turning up to a, a regional meeting quite intimidating for the very first time. You sort of have to go into a room full of people that know each other on your own and introduce yourself. So what do you do at Shropshire yeah. to welcome new members in? Uh, well, specifically seek them out. Um, you know, you you can generally tend to spot new faces, and um, although it's quite difficult when there's quite a big a room full of people, um, that you know you can get into quite deep, long conversations, and you, you pop out, see out of the corner of your eye, somebody new coming in, and they're looking a bit lost. So sometimes you have to interrupt that conversation and go and say hi and ask them about what they're, what they're doing and what, what car, have they got a Jaguar? Are they thinking of that? What sort of car? What sort of Jaguar do they want? Are they like the modern? Because there's a good, a large proportion of the um, more recent members to the club have been owners of the, the F-Pace, of course. Um, so that that's, you know, a practical car for the for the day and age, but um, it's still a Jaguar, and um, that that could bring a bit of interest in previous classic Jaguars as well. So, lots of different aspects of conversation, and of course, you've been very much involved in the uh, the establishment, just mm. like you have with the TR Club of the Young Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Yeah, and um, I believe that's going along great guns now. Absolutely, of course, our own Tom Robinson here on the podcast, who does Tom's diary, yes, preparing his race car, uh, is uh, leading that along with uh, Scarlett as well. And well, indeed, and, and one thing that. Um, I would really like to make a point of is that there are, there are different levels of membership, if you like, in terms of the ownership of, of classic Jaguars and expensive Jaguars. And sometimes I've, I've heard various comments about people wanting to join clubs where they've only got, I say only, they've only got an X-Type and they bought it for a 1500 couple of grand or whatever. And they, they felt somehow looked down upon and that's something I would like to see totally see the end of because where do we where do we all start you know you if you're young you've got all sorts of commitments you've got um, mortgages to pay you're probably paying off your university loan and whatever um, so you can't afford to run an expensive Jaguar but you you have a love if you, you've taken the trouble to come to a meeting and bring your X-Type and you've cleaned it up and you know you take care of it then you've got every right to be as respected as anybody else in the Jaguar world and they are the backbone they're, they're the future of the club so I think you know I'd, I'd like people to take note of the fact that um, if they see 
some young lad with a, um, a bit of a souped-up X-Type or an old XJ, go and have a chat with them, talk to them about Jaguars, uh, look at their opinions and make them feel welcome. Well, um, let's not forget, Nick, of course, you know, going back 30, 40 years, E-Types weren't really worth much either, and especially things no. like Mark IIs, they were being run around with no floors in them and stuff. All of those oh, cars God, that yeah, are now yeah. revered classics have been at that point in their life at some point, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. Well, do you know, um, going way back when I, I bought my um, second big Healy, it was a Mark IIa, which was known as the purest model because it had the wind-up windows but still had the leather cloth dash. And I bought that, um, it, was, it was 1970, and I bought it with 32,000 miles on the clock for 350 quid. Well, we, we bought our first house. We were absolutely skinned. Sue said, you know, we need to get some furniture. We can't use the Helia every day. Um, it'll have to go. So big sacrifice. But I stuck it in Classic Car Magazine, and somebody came from Australia to buy it. Um, he was looking for the best Helia you could find. And he's, we settled on 1,750 quid, which seems like an absolute bargain now. But I had the actual cash in my hand, and I dragged Sue off. We, we were going to the bank to pay it in. It was cash. And, um, of course, I dragged her off to the um, classic car auctions on Deansgate in Manchester where we worked, didn't I? And there was this Aston Martin DB5 Super Legera, sage green, green, sun-dim green-tinted windows, beautiful, absolutely immaculate car, a 1965 car. Do you know what it sold under the hammer for? 1250 quid goodness me she was holding my arm down she said you bid on that <laughs> we're divorced so uh, ne- it was always the car that got away i never let her forget that <laughs> never have you hated buying furniture more after that i can imagine <laughs> That's right. yeah always bought this awful co- black corduroy and chrome stuff from a trendy furniture shop in stockport <laughs> i can't let you go without asking about some of the high points of your work career. Uh, nothing to do with Jaguars, this, but some fascinating stories here. You have on your list oh, of well. things you've achieved in your life, and you'll have to talk us through this, um, airbrush muralling on custom cars and patenting the fade-in sunstrip. You've got to tell us more. Oh, well, yes. I mean, it, when, when you're young, you, you kind of get into all sorts of things. And um, we, I, when I started in advertising, I was, on, I was taken on as a studio junior at um, Junior Artist. Three pounds, ten shillings a week. The guy said, I'll add that can handle the brush. When can I start? <laughs> um, so the, the train fare into Manchester was two quid. Uh, so it's left me one pound fifty, which I gave to my parents. So I, I, needed to, I needed to get a decent car. So I started, firstly, a car cleaning ground, which um, brought me to actually clean... Um, a Mark One 3.4 Jaguar, which was owned by an Irish navvy. Absolutely beautiful car, uh, cleaned it up to be immaculate, and he let me drive it around. So uh, that, was, that was good fun. And uh, the other side was I was doing freelance, and I ended up getting in touch with some of the, uh, the people involved in the, the car business, and I was doing stickers for Roy Phelps at Santa Pod, drag, drag racing stickers and, and designs for um, the Rod and Custom Shop and Rod and Custom Show, which was run by... Two very, well, pretty famous guys, Roger Attaway and Graham Kelsey, they started the Rod and Custom show at Bellevue in Manchester. So um, I was sort of seeing them, and they, they realized I was getting involved in the art world, and they said, look, you know, um, everybody's wanting custom murals on their cars. And um, I already knew a guy called Moggy Mills, John Mills, who had um, a custom body shop in Hazelgrove. He did some pretty famous show cars in the day. 
And um, they said, you know, the, the, the existing muralists um, were called Jeff Ridgway and uh, another guy whose name I forget. Um, they're all too busy. Can you do airbrush muraling? So I said, yeah, I'll give it a try. So I did a few demos, having bought myself an airbrush, and uh, they said, great, fantastic. So kind of long story short, I ended up, um, I'd, I'd worked during the day at um, the ad agency, go home to my parents, have some dinner, go to John Mills' place, and spend the night until the, the, the late early hours, you know, four and five in the morning, um, freehand airbrush muraling all sorts of things onto cars um, prior to the show. And it, it, it always worked out that it had to be done late at night and urgently because they, they spend ages rebuilding and you know, modif- modding the cars. Um, then they should go into the paint shop for the base paint and all the candy apples and so on. And then the mural would go on, then finally the lacquer. And literally sometimes it would be lacquered the night before the show uh hauled off with still almost wet tacky paint to the rod and custom show to be exhibited so um it was quite a life you know i i managed to survive on about two hours sleep a night for weeks (laughs) on end um wasn't particularly well paid but very great fun and very rewarding and we Got a, we got a few few awards and um, I got, managed to get a couple of little articles on what I'd done in uh, Custom Car Magazine. Steve Myatt used to publish that. I don't know if you remember Steve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark McFarlane. Um, great guy. Anyway, uh, he's great now because I don't just supply leather work because I, I get a lot involved with the automotive industry um, making stamps and actually stamp, heat stamping leather for seat backs and things. So, for example, um, you know the JCB, the fastest JCB in the world, as driven by Guy Martin. Um, I did the first 100 production models for them, them with their seats, and I've done the Singer Porsches. I do that on a fairly regular basis as they get built, you know, two and a half million quid cars. Um, and, and various other customizers who do trick vans and, you know, special custom vehicles. So there's a huge amount of variety. Fantastic. And when you're not busy doing all of these amazing creative things, and I always find it fascinating to learn about the stories behind how people fund their passion for Jaguars and classic cars. Uh, but you're also, yeah. of course, busy with all those things that you've just explained with uh, JC Shropshire and the Welsh Borders and putting together their newsletter as well, which, of course, we always talk about when you join the JC, you get included on in your membership a fantastic magazine that comes through every month the jaguar enthusiast but also you get a regional one if you're in your part of the world as well which is uh, yeah, just as right. professional on, so. oh thanks well it's online only but it's great because i can feature members cars um, or anybody that wants to write into me um, just go um, onto the jc website and look for shropshire welsh borders and they can send an email with details of their their cars um or their their stories and so on and i've got i've got some fantastic ones coming up there's a, there's a guy for example called luca manny um, who's a friend of the the club i didn't know him until i did i met him through other members of the club who'd been out to italy to see him and we've sort of been chatting online and so on and he's created the most uh, fantastic xkr which is going to be the, the world's first 4.8-litre big-bore super-square RSR supercharged engine. Um, it's a black beast. Um, he's put in Ibach coilover springs, Bilstein adjustable dampers. Um, it's, it's, he's got a wing on the back, a stabilising wing, so he says you can drive with two... Doing 200 kilometres an hour, he can drive with two fingers on the steering wheel. It's that stable. It's a proper working rear wing. 
And so I'm going to be doing a full story on, on that in the next issue, as I am also on um, Julian Barrett's racing XK, uh, sorry, racing E-Type. So um, it, it's really enjoyable doing the research and, and getting to meet people through the newsletter. And hopefully it's an interesting read for people too. And um, you know, always encourage them to come when we do have the, the, the meetings or, or just chat online, you know, have, have a chat about things that interest them and, um, I can put them in the newsletter. Brilliant. Well, to find out more about our regions in the JEC, go to our website, jec.org.uk, and you'll see the regions button on the homepage there. You can see the full directory of the region and the local group meets that are local to your part of the country and indeed the world. We're across the world as the Jaguar Enthusiast Club as well. But uh, Nick Cliff, thank you very much for joining us here on the JEC podcast. Oh, it's it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening to me waffle on. (laughs) That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.